welcome to Standing in the Gap. I'm your host preacher, Brandon Harrell. Standing in the Gap is a weekly audio Bible study dedicated to the verse-by-verse exposition of the KJV Scriptures. It is my prayer that through these studies, the lost will be saved, the believer edified, and most of all, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be magnified and honored through the proclamation of His Word. For correspondence information, please stay tuned until the end of the broadcast. May the Lord bless you as you listen to this week's Standing in the Gap. All right, Matthew 1, if you'll stand, we'll read the first 17 verses together. Matthew chapter number 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar. Phares begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon. Salmon begat Booz of Rechab, and Booz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Reboam, Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. And Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias. And Ezekias begat Manassas, Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias. And Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon... Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor. And Azor begat Sadik, and Sadik begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad. And Eliad begat Eliezer, and Eliezer begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. You can be seated. And again, I repeat if I mispronounce names... Just know that the ones I get wrong and you get right, there'll probably be times when I'm getting them right and you're getting them wrong. Amen. And so don't be too hard on me. It's an amazing thing, the records that are kept for us in the Word of God, of the details of the lineage of those of whom we read. And as we think about these lists throughout Scripture, They are very significant, not only for historical purposes, but they are necessary for us in the trailing of the Messiah through history. 
here in Matthew, and we looked a little bit last week in Luke 3 as well, we find the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1 that this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That's been what I've titled this uh, series of messages, if you will. I don't know if we'll go beyond two, but we might. But the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. We noted last week the importance of genealogy. It was important for titles, for property, for land. The Jews uh, had that allotment of property that was given to them when Canaan was divided up. And so they had to know the tribe that they came from so they would know where they were supposed to reside and what property belonged unto them. In Luke 2, we find it was important for taxation, for Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem to be taxed because they were of the city of David, and uh, that told them where they were to go to be taxed. It was important for the priesthood. They could not have a priesthood without this genealogy because you had to be a Levite. That's why there are no uh, verified priests among the Jews in our day. That, that tracing, that evidence is completely gone because of the destruction of Jerusalem. But this mattered also for the sake of the throne. The Messiah, in verse 1 it says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He had to be the son of David and the son of Abraham. And I pointed out this, this last time, there's no Jew alive on earth today who could verify that he was of the lineage of the house of David. Now, uh, as we think about that, God settled that matter on purpose and made it to where that would be impossible. They no longer needed that information because the Messiah has come. They're still waiting on him. I don't know how they're going to prove it's him when he gets here, whoever they think that it is. Of course, we know that'll be the Antichrist. He'll have some way to convince them, but it'll be a lie. Amen. But now we find in verse uh, verses uh uh, two and three here, uh, he begins to give us the lineage from Abraham on. He doesn't give us anything in Matthew 1 from Abraham back. We find that in Luke 3 when we find there the lineage of Mary, the genealogy of Mary. Now last week we told you of a few things in these verses. We talked about his royal descent and how that Jesus, the, the Messiah, had to be of the house of David. We talked about some omissions throughout uh, these verses. In verse 17, it says, All the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So he breaks up the lineage of Christ into three sections of 14 generations. Now, I'm not real sure of the details of why that is. I think he was just trying to keep it uniform. There's a lot of different speculation, but we understand that by these omissions, there were actually more generations between. There were more uh, people in between, but uh, they were not mentioned. And so he's not telling us that I've, I've heard some people try to take that verse and say, well, because we know that it was longer than that from uh, Adam to Jesus, then it couldn't, it couldn't be right. There was a mistake there. No, he was trying to keep this uniformity for whatever reason, and so he left names out of the lineage. But we found a few of those omissions. We found in verse 8 
that it says Asa begat Josaphat, Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias. That would be uh, Uzziah. Now between Joram and Uzziah, there were three kings that we don't find mentioned here. One was Ahaziah, then Joash, and Amaziah. We told you last week of Ahaziah that he was the son-in-law of Ahab. He married Ahab and Jezebel's wicked daughter. Because of that, he began to practice that same idolatry, and God cursed him. And we find that that curse in the mentioning of these names in the genealogy spread to the second and third generation, just like Exodus promised would be the curse upon those who were in idolatry. And so Joash is not mentioned, and Amaziah are not mentioned, along with Ahaziah. But then we noticed in verse 11 another omission. He says, And Josias begat Jeconias. Well, in between those, Josiah's son was Jehoiakim. And we found some things concerning him. Jehoiakim uh, was a, another wicked king. Um, and of course, he got carried into captivity in Babylon. But in verse number 11, it says, Josiah begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Now, we reminded you a little bit last week of Jeconias. I'm going to look at him a little bit more later on in the message. But that told us of these obstructions. What happened was God had cursed Jeconias and said that there would never be any of his seed who would ever sit upon the throne again. Now, Joseph's lineage takes us back to David through Solomon, where Jeconias was found. But Mary's genealogy took us back through uh, the, the lineage back to Nathan, the son of David. And I pointed out to you as we closed last week, the devil was busy attacking that line from Solomon, trying to eliminate the Messiah from coming, but he was ignoring all of other you know, children of David. And there was Nathan, the son of David and Bathsheba, coming down the line. And that's how God would go around Jeconias and bring this genealogy to still have the Messiah having the right to the throne. Of course, not being the son of Joseph, uh, physically speaking, that was bypassed. So God had placed a curse, and it wasn't that God made a mistake and messed up, but God had a plan to divert the devil's attention to bring Messiah in. The, the Lord's smarter than the devil any day of the week, amen. But then we talked about his racial descent there in Luke 3. So we've seen the genealogy of Christ in this book of the generation of Jesus Christ. But today, I want us to see the grace of Christ in this book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The grace of Christ. I was reading this again throughout the week and this morning and even a little bit during the singing. And uh, it is amazing the Grace that we find throughout these verses. Grace for pretty much anybody you can imagine. Grace for anybody of any race, of any color, of any nationality. Grace for of those of any religion. As we read this genealogy of Christ, we find uh, so many who are connected to him that apart from this, it'd be hard to believe that they had any connection to him whatsoever. 
And it's amazing to me how that uh, some of these who were born in certain places and uh, were born in certain situations ever uh, would have even come in contact with the Jews' religion, much less uh, be listed in the genealogy of the Messiah of Christ. We've got Jews here and Gentiles, males and females. Uh, we've got Canaanites and Hittites. We've got all manner of people. And I just want to say this, and we'll get to it later, but thank God that the grace of God hath appeared to all men. Amen. I'm glad there's grace for everyone. And whether you realize it or not, you have experienced God's grace in some way or shape in your life. But as we read this and looked over this, there's just a few thoughts that I want to give you. First of all, there is grace in this genealogy for the scattered. Grace for the scattered. Look at verse 2 and notice this. Now, we're giving here, we're getting in these verses a genealogy. A genealogy is a list of direct descendants of an individual. That means that that link should start at one person and go down through only direct links, only direct relatives, if you will, of the one to whom we are coming. But in verse number two, it says, Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Now that's a point in which this family tree forked. From Judas, there was his brethren. His brethren were not directly descendants of Jesus Christ. They were not direct descendants, uh, let me say this, rather of Joseph, of the one we're linked to here. But yet, they are mentioned in this genealogy. Why? We didn't need to know that Judah had brethren in order to get to Joseph. That wasn't necessary information for the tracing of this link. But I believe here what the Lord had in mind, what the Holy Ghost who inspired this scripture had in mind was to encourage those of the other tribes of, of Israel that they too still had a part and a lot in the Messiah, the King that would come. Now you think about it. Jacob had 12 sons. We've been studying them as we've looked at the life of Joseph in our Sunday night services. We've taken a little break here lately, but uh, hopefully it'll still be fresh enough on your mind to remember those sons of Jacob. And we've gone through many of them in detail through their lives. We looked at the judgment seat there of Jacob in Genesis 49. We saw Reuben and we saw Simeon and Levi. Uh, we, we know the names. We, we, we're familiar with the brethren of Judas. But Judah was the one out of whom Shiloh would come. That was very clear in Jacob's uh, pronouncement of blessing upon him. It was Judah that would be uh, the one that would uh, have the scepter. But still here the other brethren are mentioned. Now at the time the Lord came, Israel had through the centuries been repeatedly disobedient and subsequently disciplined by the Lord through many conquerings and captivities. That had resulted in the scattering of the descendants of Abraham throughout the known world. For example, after the decree of Cyrus in Ezra chapter 9 that the captivity was over in Babylon and that they were free to go then back to Jerusalem, 
we find that only 42,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem. The rest <coughs> remained in Babylon. Their descendants stayed in those areas from then on. Babylon, of course, was conquered and became other provinces and different things happened, but their descendants were still there. When the Lord comes on the scene and we're reading in the New Testament of the Passover and of the feast that would take place, we find that Jews were coming from all over the place. We think about what was taking place in the temple. That came up before us a few weeks ago here recently uh, in some preaching, how that the Lord went into the temple and uh, drove out the money changers. Well, why were they there? They were there to sell sacrifices, to sell the animals that would be sacrificed to Jews who had traveled from other parts of the world to come there and to, uh, to, to worship the Lord at the Passover. So they were scattered all about. And there were some who believed by the time the Lord had come that the promise had already been broken. They already believed that Judah uh, having the scepter was a thing of the past. What they didn't take into account was even in Babylonian captivity, there were Daniels who had great authority. Though they did not sit on a throne per se, they still had the scepter. And God had kept his promise, but they didn't understand that many had, had began to give up hope on the Messiah altogether. And so as he mentions here Judah, he reminds them of Judah's brethren to remind them that, that they still had uh, an interest in Messiah. And let me say this, that Messiah still had interest in them. Amen. And it's one thing to have interest in him, but I'm glad that he's got interest in me. But now... Um, as, as we think about this, these, these came from all corners of the earth uh, to worship at Passover, but the promises of God had not faltered. They had not wavered. God had told Abraham that in his seed all the nations would be blessed. And though Messiah would come directly through Judah, the blessing was still unto Abraham and all of his seed. So we think about Reuben who lost his birthright. That tribe of Reuben that really had, had almost been dissipated completely by this time. He's reminding them in this verse that, look, Messiah's still coming and you still have interest in him. Simeon and Levi. What of Joseph? And by extension, his half-Egyptian sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. They received the birthright of Reuben after Reuben had lost it. But there they are. They're mentioned here in an in a indirect manner of Judah and his brethren. Here we find grace for the scattered, seemingly forgotten seed of Jacob. That still holds true today. In Romans 11, verses 1 to 6, Paul said, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? 
I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. He said, and if by grace it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works and is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. What is he saying? He's saying God's not done with the people of Israel. Though they may have thought that, this genealogy here given to us by Matthew is another affirmation that God is not done with them, that Messiah still is, that they still have interest in Messiah. Now this same truth is pictured again in the mention of Zarah in verse number 3. He says, And Judas begat Pharaoh's and Zarah of Thamar, which we know is Tamar, and then he says, and Pharaoh's beget Esram. So Pharaoh's is the one uh, where the link's coming through. So why does he mention Zerah? You remember the situation with those two. In Genesis chapter number 38 and verse 27, uh, speaking of Tamar, it says, it came, to it came to pass in the time of her travail that behold, twins were in her womb. It came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound up his hand, uh, bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, "This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that behold, his brother came out, and she said, "How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Phares, and afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So these twins were about to be born. And Zerah stuck his hand out to the point they thought, surely he's coming out first. And they tied that ribbon, that red ribbon around his wrist. But then he goes back in, he, he drew his hand back in, and Perez was born first. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of the Jews who had that scarlet thread in their grasp. They had, they, they, they had every privilege, every right given unto them as the firstborn. They were God's chosen people, but in unbelief they drew back. And so God, in Romans chapter 11, verses 7 to 12, says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but listen to this. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. And so just as when Zerah pulled his arm back in, Pharez came out first and received the blessing of the firstborn. It's the same with the Jews when they drew back in unbelief. Now we are blessed. God has allowed that to fall out to the salvation of the Gentiles. God's not done. He says, now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness so the promise here in verse 2, there's so much there to study. Pharez and Zerah are a picture of the Jew and the Gentile, both being and both having interest in Messiah. Grace for the scattered. God is reminding his people 
But he is not done. He has not cast them away. But not only grace for the scattered, we see grace for the sinner. Grace for the sinner. In verse 3, this account of uh, Tamar is brought before us. And I don't want to go into the gory, nasty, wicked details of that, but you remember Judah, one of his sons, had uh, married Tamar and they didn't have children. And when he died, it was up to his brethren to make sure she had children and they didn't do it. And she was upset, so she tricked Judah into doing that. And we find in Genesis 38 that they are the parents of these two children that we read of here in chapter number 1, verse 3 of Matthew. And what a wicked situation that was. And I won't put all the blame on Tamar. we got to lay the blame where it goes, right? It was Judah as well. And uh, Judah had a lot of mess in his past. We studied that when we looked at Genesis 49. He had a lot of issues, a lot of problems, a lot of sin in his life along the way. But I thought about this, and uh, I was reading over that chapter again this morning. Go to Genesis 38 with me, and look at just a couple of verses here. Genesis 38, verse number 24. <clears throat> it says, and it came to pass, of course, you remember, Judah finds out that Tamar's pregnant. They said Tamar played the harlot, and Judah's upset about it. But it says, and it came to pass about three months after, in verse 24 here, Genesis 38, came to pass about three months after, that it was told Judah, saying, Tamar thy daughter-in-law hath played the harlot, and also, behold, she is with child by whoredom. And Judah said, Bring her forth, and let her be burnt. He said, Bring her up here. Let's burn her. We're going to obey the law. All of a sudden, he's interested in obeying the law, isn't he? Isn't it amazing how people get real interested in that when they think somebody else is guilty? Verse number 25, When she saw when she saw. When she was brought forth, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man whose these are, am I with child? And she said, Discern, I pray thee, whose are these, the signet and bracelets and staff? That was Judah's that he gave to her when this act took place. Then look at verse 26. And Judah acknowledged them and said, She hath been more righteous than I, because that I gave her not the Sheila my son, and he knew her again no more. Now, I don't want to stretch too far here. But when Judah recognized this, we find that he stopped what he had been doing. He stopped. He knew her again no more. I, I kind of see maybe a little bit of repentance here beginning in the heart of Judah in this situation. And we go and find these children are born here. We read it already. Uh, Phares and Zerah are born unto them. And now here we find in Matthew 1, they're mentioned in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Judah and Tamar find grace. Amen. They find mention in this lineage. How could that be possible apart from the grace of God? They did some vile things. They were wicked. But thank God, there was grace. Then we find grace for Rahab uh, here in verse number Five of uh, Matthew 1. And Salmon begat booze of Rechab. So Rahab, that's who we're speaking of here. She and Salmon had a son by the name of Booze. The Old Testament name is Boaz. We all know about Boaz. 
But here was Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, look in uh, Joshua chapter 2 with me. Joshua chapter number 2. And let's just run down and take a gander at Rahab for a little bit. I want you to notice, first of all, her sinfulness in verse one and Joshua the son of Nun sent out the uh, sent out of uh, Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, "Go view the land, even Jericho." And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there, a harlot's house. Now, I've read some people who find her name in the lineage of Christ, and they want to say that when Joshua was talking about her being a harlot, that really just meant she owned a bed and breakfast. I don't think that's what that meant. I think she had a wicked lifestyle. Uh, the Bible said she was a harlot. That's not the same as a hostess. It's just not the same. People get offended by the fact that she's in there, but I get blessed by the fact that she's in there because of grace. But notice, they brought her into the house whose name was Rahab. She was a harlot, and they lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, there came men in hither tonight of the children of Israel to search out the country. So we see her sinfulness. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into the house, for they be come to search out all the country. And the woman took the two men and hid them, and said thus, There came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them." But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them the way of, to Jordan under the forge. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up under the roof upon, uh, up under them upon the roof, and she said unto the men, I know, listen to this, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. Here's her fear. We mentioned that in Sunday school. The word fear keeps coming up lately. She said, and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did under the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sihon, and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. So there was sinfulness there, but now thank God there's fear there. There's an understanding of who God is. And it's a good thing to tremble in fear at the awareness of who God is. She said, we've heard what he's done to other sinful places. We've heard what he's done to other wicked cities. And we know that if he can do it there, if he can get you out of Egypt, if he can do what he did to Sihon and Og through you, then we don't stand a chance. And she said, I look around and there's not a man left in Jericho that's got one ounce of courage. They're all shaking in their boots, scared to death of the Lord your God because he is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. So there's fear. But then in verse 12, we're going to find her faith. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you will also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. 
And that you will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they, uh, all they have and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, our life for yours. If you be utter, uh, if, if you be utter not, if, if ye utter not this, our business. And it shall be when the Lord hath given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. And she said unto them, Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers be returned, and afterward may you go your way. And the men said unto her, We will be blameless of this thine oath, which thou hast made us swear. So here we see her faith. Now, what she had heard caused her to fear. But when she met the representatives of the Lord, when she met them and hid them there, she, she has this oath made from them, and she trusts them. She believes them. If she hadn't believed them, all she'd had to do was cry and holler, and somebody would have come and made sure that they put an end to those boys. But she believed what they had said. She believed the word, amen, that the Lord had sent. That's faith. And that's what, it is to, that's what it is to believe now. You believe the word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Starts with a healthy fear of who God is. But it's, it's got to lead to faith in him. Rahab here finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we know this much about her. Uh, from our verses in the book of Matthew, uh, she settled down, amen. Uh, she married Salmon. And I got, a hard, I got a hard time believing Salmon would be all right if she kept on being a harlot. I don't think she kept on being a harlot, amen. I think she got saved right there. I think she believed on the Lord. And the Bible tells us that her and Salmon had a boy by the name of Booz, by the name of Boaz. What a blessing. There's grace for the sinner here. Even for an old Gentile harlot by the name of Rahab, there's grace in Christ. Then we go on down in these verses in verse number uh, 5. And six, look at verse six. We're talking about grace for the sinners. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Here's some more sinners that need grace. More sinners in need of grace. We find David and Bathsheba. Upon the prophet Nathan's rebuke of David, he repented. That's found in Psalm 51. Now I would note that there's reason to believe that Bathsheba repented as well. It was she and Nathan who thwarted the efforts of Adonijah to usurp the throne. And David and Bathsheba then named one of their sons Nathan. And that's the one we found last week in Luke 3 in the genealogy there linked to Mary, Nathan. That's how God got around Jeconias and his curse. But David and Bathsheba, you remember Nathan came in and said, David, there's a fellow had one sheep and... He loved his little sheep. And then this fellow that had a whole lot more money, this wealthy guy, he had visitors coming. Instead of killing one of the many sheep he had, he went out and killed this fellow's one sheep that he loved so dear. David said, bring him to me. I'm going to chop his head off. And Nathan just looked him in the eye and said, thou art the man. Thou art the man. And all these wives and concubines. And Uriah had one wife that he loved. And here you are, you took her. Oh, and David repented in sackcloth and ashes. We read that account in Psalm 51. Grace for sinners. I'm glad there's grace for sinners. Boy, David needed it. Bathsheba needed it. I needed it and you need it. I'm glad, thank God, there's grace to be had for sinners. We find 
Not only grace for the sinner and grace for the scattered, there's grace for the stranger. Verse 5, Rahab. And she was there in Jericho. She was a Canaanite, an old wicked Gentile. Brother Fred dealt with Cornelius this morning and how the gospel officially went to the Gentiles there through Peter and then, of course, through Paul. But understand, that wasn't the first Gentile ever got in, amen. God had been alluding to this all along. He'd been pulling a Gentile here and a Gentile there out of the muck and the mire of sin and, and uh, pulling them out of destruction and saving them. He did it there with Rahab in Jericho. She didn't deserve nothing. She was a harlot. She was a pagan just like the rest of them. And uh, God saved her. Thought about uh, how we come then to Ruth, a little Moabitess damsel. My, my, what a story. Orpha, she turned back. They only said, look, I, my sons are dead. There's nothing left for you here. Just going back to your, and going back to your pagan gods, going back to your pagan family, going to find your husbands. You're still young. You can still have children. You can still, uh, you can still be everything you need to be. And Orpha cried a little while and then turned around and walked off. And Ruth looked at Naomi and said, your God's my God. From now on, I'm going where you go, and I'll be where you are, and I'm going to worship where you worship. And Naomi said, well, what if I, even if I had a husband now and had another child and he grew up, you'd be too old then to have children. Ruth said, look, I'm not interested in all that. I just want to follow God. I want to be, I want to be a Jew, amen. God saved her. God pulled her out of the wash pot down there in Moab and saved her. And here she is listed in the genealogy of Christ. Thought about this. Good chance Bathsheba was a Gentile. Her husband was Uriah the Hittite. The Hittites were pagans. Abraham dealt with them. You remember that field that he bought in Machpelah where he buried Sarah? He bought that from Ephraim the Hittite down there in Heth. And the Jews inhabited there. But then there was Uriah and Bathsheba. No doubt she probably was a Hittite too. Just another Gentile right there in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. Well, there's a lot of them now, ain't there? Thank God that fire got set back there in the first century back there on Pentecost and it's been burning ever since. There's been Gentiles coming in droves to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace for the, grace for the stranger, amen. Grace for the soldier. It doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name, but we find Urias here, don't we? Urias, what a soldier he was. First, Second Samuel 11, verses 9 to 11. But Uriah slept at the door. You remember what David tried to do after he found out Bathsheba was having a baby. He said, bring Uriah off the field. I've got to get him down there with Bathsheba. And he got him there and in in, he got him home and he tried to get him to drink and he wouldn't even drink. And we find out in chapter 11, verses 9 to 11, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. When they told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. He said, no, there's a battle going on. I don't have time for the pleasures and the, 
delights and the wine and the and the meals. He said, I'm, I, I, my heart's there in the battle. My heart's there with my, with my fellow soldiers. And, and he was as good a soldier as you could find, so good so that he was named in the book of 2 Samuel 23 among David's mighty men. You rise, what a faithful soldier. But he got those marching orders that day. He said, take this note to Joab. Got down there in Joab. Read it and said, all right, Uriah, you're on the front lines. Knowing good and well, he's going to be in the hottest part of the battle. And he had orders from David to abandon Uriah there. Can't you see him fighting to the death? I'd like to know how many he took out on the way down. There he walked straight to his death, not fearful. He was serving his king. I'm glad we got a king that never betray us, Amen. But listen here, this world will do you some hard decks here and there. And there'll be some blows you'll have to take and there'll be some hard time. And in this walk of faith and loving the Lord and serving Him, we're not going to get any reward here sometimes. But I'm glad, thank God, that the benefits are out of this world and there's grace for the soldier right here in the genealogy of Christ. Be faithful, steadfast, stick with the stuff. You right. Grace for, the, grace for the soldier. Then there's grace for the slave. Verse 12, I couldn't help but think about this. It says, and after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias, that's Jehoiachin, begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. So he to told us in verse 11 about the time they were carried away, and in verse 12, after they were brought to Babylon. Well, Jehoiachin was the one who was locked up. Look there. In 2 Kings with me again. 2 Kings 24. Look at this. 2 Kings 24 verse 10. It says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, that's Jeconias in our text in Matthew, Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers, and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon. And the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land, those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. We read it to you last week in the book of Jeremiah that this Jehoiachin was the one who the curse was on, that his seed would no longer sit upon the throne. And we find that his name uh, is here in uh, this genealogy. But in uh, chapter number 25 of 2 Kings, look at verse number 27. And it came to pass... In the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the twelfth month on the seventh and on the seven and twentieth day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, out of prison. And he spake kindly to him and set his throne above uh, the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon and changed his prison garments and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. 
And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king a daily rate for every day, all the days of his life. Here was a wicked king under a terrible curse, but even he finds his way into the genealogy of Christ, and we find him in the latter days of his life here on earth receiving grace from the king. Grace. He got a change of clothes. He got a daily allowance. His daily needs were met. Grace here for a slave. Isn't that amazing? Grace for the saints. We find Joseph and Mary here. And uh, we, we, this has come up a little bit in Sunday school and various places as we've, as we've been studying God's word lately. But this was an incredible time in the history of the world. Especially if you were a Jew. And I believe if, uh, well, just like with Simeon and just like with Anna, they were looking for the Messiah. I believe if they'd died before he got here, they'd have died in faith. I believe they'd be in that hall of faith that we read about uh, over there in Hebrews 11. But they were in this incredible period of time when it went from looking for him to come to being here when he got here. And you find Anna and you find Simeon, you find other. And I believe that was the case for Joseph and Mary. But something changed when the Lord Jesus came. It became no longer looking ahead in faith. But it came looking uh, in straight ahead of you in faith, looking at what was there. And they needed a Savior. Up until Christ came, they had atonement made through the sacrifices that had been given. And God's wrath was appeased. But now the Savior was here. And they needed a Savior. But thank God that faith transferred, if you will. From a coming Messiah to a Messiah who was come. Joseph and Mary, devout believers. Mary was faithful. Joseph was faithful. The Bible tells us of him here in verse 19 of this very chapter. Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. He was a just man. That means he was righteous. There's grace for the saints. Aren't you glad for that? Hey, listen, I thought about this. They were looking ahead for Messiah. They were patiently awaiting that deliverance that would come. And now here it was. They had grace in waiting. Now they had grace in receiving. And look, we're not looking for Messiah to come. We know he's already here. But we're looking for him to come again. Amen. And if they had grace waiting for him to come the first time, there's grace for the saints of God waiting on him to come a second time. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad for that? Grace. Grace for the Son, S-U-N, begat, begat, begat. We read it over and over and over and over. Begat, begat, begat. What does that mean? Just to give birth to, just to have a child, just to be the father of. What does that mean? It means if they're born, then we know they die. Grace for the Son. Here we have Gentiles and Jews. Here we find males and females. That was an unusual thing. There's only four women listed in this genealogy. This is one of the few genealogies where you'll find the name of a lady. That's just reminding us that, that, you know, that they're all one in Christ, as Galatians tells us. There's neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. In grace, thank God, we're on equal ground. The most, uh, the, the most equality you'll ever find between the sexes is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the sum, grace, grace, Canaanites, Hittites, Gentiles, kings, peasants, amen. Grace for the sum, the S-U-M, 
But then grace for the sum, S-O-M-E. Now, not all who are found in this genealogy died in faith. Some went to hell. This ought to be a solemn warning to us that it is possible to receive grace and have some superficial contact with Christ and yet die lost. Take Manasseh, for instance. He's mentioned here in verse number 10. I thought about Manasseh as I was reading through the book of uh, 2 Kings there. In, in 2 Kings chapter number 21, and uh, the first several verses, and I'm, I'm closing with this, but, but look at this. First, 2 Kings 21 verse 1. It tells us of this Manasseh. The Bible says he was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. He built up again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal, made a grove, as did Ahab. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He's worshiping the stars in the court of the house of the Lord. Hezekiah done all that reform him and Manasseh come in and absolutely reversed everything Hezekiah had done. The Bible says in verse number 6, it got even worse. He made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Manasseh's a wicked bird, boy. Goes on and tells us about him here in verse 8. Um... Or verse 9, they hearkened not to Manasseh, seduced him. Manasseh, or, well, the Lord in verse 8 says, Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded. So the Lord sends a warning to them, and they wouldn't listen. They instead listened to Manasseh, who seduced him to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Manasseh's wicked. In verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. Verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 17, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned are not, are not are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Manasseh's wicked, man. He's ungodly. He's in the genealogy of Christ. He's in that same line. But he's wicked. The Bible tells us uh, that Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead after he passed away. That's verses 19 to 25 there in 2 Kings 21. And in chapters 22 and 23, we have the record of the reign of Josiah, the grandson of Manasseh. What a great king. Reform after reform, revival happened under Josiah. I mean, it was unlike anything they'd seen in that nation in centuries. But down in verse 25 of chapter 23, the scripture says, And like unto him there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, 
Neither after him arose there any like him. That's Josiah, man. He was after God's heart. But it says, notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said my name shall be there. Just because these folk were listed in this genealogy of Christ and just because we see grace throughout it does not mean they all made it to heaven. Does not mean they all knew the Lord. Matthew Henry said it like this. He said, grace does not run in the blood. Grace does not run in the blood. You can be so close. You can hear so much truth. You can have godly people, godly grandparents, godly parents. You can even have godly children. And none of those things have any bearing whatsoever on whether or not you're going to heaven. All that matters is if you know this Jesus of whom we read. This Jesus who came to this earth to die for sinners. Who gave his life, laid it down willingly. Took the punishment and wrath of God for sinners. That Jesus who then upon being buried three days later rose again from the dead. Manasseh's in hell. Being in this list didn't change that. Didn't, didn't, didn't do anything about that. He, he would not believe. He would not trust. How close can we be and yet be so far away? Let's stand our feet this morning. There's grace. There's grace for the S-U-M, for the sum. Then there's a special grace for the S-O-M-E. Thank you for listening to Standing in the Gap. It is my desire that today's episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to contact me, my email is bcharrell83 at protonmail.com. That's B-C-H-A-R-R-E-L-L 83 at protonmail.com. You can also reach me by phone at 828-777-4923. Tune in next time for Standing in the Gap.